it would today we would say it went viral. You know, by the next few days, it was being shown um, across the country on local newscasts. It was there were photos of it in newspapers, and you know, people were just seeing all hell breaking loose in Chicago. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor and Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. 1968. It was one of the most tumultuous years in U.S. history. But what isn't talked much about is what a pivotal year it also was for journalism history. People today think accusations of liberal media are new and have created incorrect mythology that the era of Walter Cronkite was a golden age of journalism when everyone loved the press and thought it was fair. But the climate for politics and media that exists today can tie back to one week in August 55 years ago. In August 1968, members of the Democratic Party gathered in Chicago to select their presidential candidate. But over 50 million households of viewers also saw chaos, protests, and violence on their television, and their reaction to it continues to echo into today. In today's episode, we discuss broadcast coverage of the 1968 Democratic National Convention with Heather Hendershot, author of When the News Broke, Chicago 1968, and The Polarizing of America. Heather, welcome to the show. You open the book with really important context, noting Americans are bad at history, but good at nostalgia. It reminds me of a book called The Way We Never Were. Why did you want to write this book? Wow. (laughs) Well, of course, we're at a moment of crisis right now in terms of trust and confidence in the news media. And I think you could tell that story about what's going on by going back six or eight years and looking at the rise of Trump and his followers and coming up to where we are now with election denialism and so on and QAnon. Um, But I thought I could really tell a better story by going back over 50 years and looking at what I consider the sort of roots of this moment of attacking the media for liberal bias. Um, so-called liberal bias. So, you know, before the Chicago Democratic Convention in 1968, the idea that the mainstream media, uh, news media, suffered from liberal bias uh, was a position held mainly by, it was a regional uh, idea, and it was a sort of fringe or extremist idea. So if you were on the far right, which could be a really hardcore extremist or someone more like uh, the so-called legitimate right, like William F. Buckley Jr., you assume that NBC, CBS, and ABC News had a liberal slant. Um, if you were a Southern segregationist who did not care for the TV news coverage of the civil rights movement. You said it was because there was a liberal bias. But the more general opinion across America was that news newsmen, and it was mostly men at the time, uh, sometimes made mistakes, but their sort of default setting was a neutrality and that that was part of their professional code. 
Um, and after Chicago, that changed. And it was because of Chicago itself and the event and how it was covered in the news, but it was also because of how, and I can go into this more later, but how certain people involved there uh, sort of weaponized the idea of liberal bias and, and used as a as a political tool following the convention. A lot of our listeners are college students, so set the stage to briefly remind them what major events happened in 1968 leading up to the chaotic Democratic Convention in Chicago and what the political climate was like in the country at the time. Wow, 1968 was a really tough year. Um, you had the Tet Offensive early in January or throughout that month, really, and and, and heading into the next month as well, which basically uh, was... Uh, a series of battles in Vietnam that ultimately, technically the U.S. won those battles, okay? But uh, the problem was that the president, President Johnson, uh, really was sending the message that we were just about to win in Vietnam, that we were ending, that we were getting near the end of this whole thing. And Americans uh, seemed to have a lot of faith in that idea. Uh, and the Tet Offensive showed that we were not about to win in Vietnam, that the Vietnamese really surged, really fought hard, uh, even got into the U.S. Embassy briefly um, in uh, South Vietnam. Uh, it That was a disaster for morale and for faith in the president and faith in the idea that, that we were going to win in Vietnam. So that's a huge issue in 1968. Um, you also have uh, a series of, of uprisings, what people at the time sometimes called race riots. Uh, and that had gone back earlier, of course. There was the Watts uprising in 1965. There was a real uh, six weeks of of looting and arson and, and so on in Detroit in 67. And then you had a lot more of that in 68. And particularly in April, following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., you have uprisings in, I believe it's uh, maybe 110 cities, including Chicago. And uh, so America just seemed completely uh, out of control at this point. Opinion has turned strongly against the war. And in addition to um, the assassination of Martin Luther King, you have Bobby Kennedy assassinated. And he had been a strong contender to be nominated for president. Uh, and he was the peace candidate at that time. And uh, Johnson had lost the support of the country and decided not to run again. So his vice president, um, uh, uh, Hubert Humphrey was running. Um, but people had hoped that Bobby Kennedy could sort of stand up to Humphrey and be a, a peace candidate. So that gives you some sense of, of the chaos, the crisis, and the anxieties that people were feeling heading into that convention by August of 68. So we have Lyndon Johnson not running for president. Bobby Kennedy has been assassinated, and there's ongoing disagreement within the Democratic Party about whether to support the Vietnam War and civil rights. This all as the major political players in the party are gathering for this convention in one place in Chicago to decide who to nominate for president. Talk about who the major broadcast journalists were who were assigned to cover this event. Well, uh, at CBS, you had Walter Cronkite, who uh, one of his nicknames was Uncle Walter. <laughs> he was uh, sometimes referred to as the most trusted man in America. Um, and uh, then at NBC, you had Chet Huntley and David Brinkley operating as a team um, doing the nightly news. And it, ABC was the sort of lesser network. It was the underdog network at that time. And it did truncated coverage 
uh, in Chicago. And so um, it's not a huge player in my book, although there's a lot of interesting things to say uh, about ABC, but the, the really big players are at NBC and CBS. And viewers are really devoted to mostly to either Cronkite or Huntley and Brinkley. Um, I've read lots and lots of, you know, letters that people sent to their favorite anchors. And they really had a sort of personal connection that they felt to each of these newscasters. Um, so you were watching on one of those networks if you were watching the convention. And it and it's important to add that if you were watching TV in August of 68, you were probably watching the convention. In other words, they were doing gavel to gavel coverage from morning to night on CBS and NBC. And uh, all the other programming was preempted. So it's a really different uh, media picture than what we have today. And I think that's really important for anyone listening to this podcast who's, who's a college student who grew up with, with the internet and with social media and has a sense of a very huge fragmented uh, sort of niche field of, of media interests and so on. This is an era of mass media, not niche media. Covering this convention wasn't easy for reporters since Chicago Mayor Richard Daley put in place strict rules to hamper how the media could cover this event. Talk about what some of those rules were and why he did that. Well, Mayor Richard J. Daley was a Democrat. His uh, nickname was actually Mr. Democrat, <laughs> big booster for the party. Um, and so that's just useful context to understand heading into Chicago. It's understood as a sort of democratic town. Um, but Daly had a very adversarial relationship to media, both locally in his town and his local newspapers and also nationally. Um, he was very censorious. He would have liked to have kept all the reporters off the floor during the convention, but he wasn't able to pull that off. So uh, instead, he radically reduced the number of floor passes that they had, which means they couldn't get enough inter uh, you know, people on the floor to interview. It was hard to get enough camera operators on the floor and sound people. Um, some people sort of skirted around that by um, using messenger passes. So you might have a major anchor or network newsman on the floor with a messenger pass, <laughs> which are you know basically people running notes back and forth because again, this is a moment you know long before cell phones, right? So you have to have people running around get, you know sharing messages. So that was one way that he stymied coverage. Um, the biggest thing was that daily. Um, uh, did not settle an electrical worker strike. And that electrical worker strike meant that they could not install enough new telephone lines for the convention to function properly. Um, again, we're way before cell phones. People depend upon pay phones. Um, and new lines had to be installed so you could pull off this, this convention. So he didn't resolve the strike. And that meant it made it harder for the delegates to communicate with each other. It made it harder for them to strategize. And it made it very hard for the newsmen to operate. And in particular, they couldn't do live coverage in the streets. They could only do live coverage inside the amphitheater. Um, and it was standard operating procedure to shoot outside of a convention hall to interview uh you know, people in the streets or the candidates didn't come to the convention hall until they were nominated. So they'd be back in their hotels and you would be nominated. You would be interviewing the candidates. You couldn't do any of that live because of the electrical worker strike. So it was a real crisis for the journalists who kind of entered into this convention feeling censored before it even started. It was really tough on people's sort of um, 
you know, emotional state setting in and their professional sort of norms were already under under fire before they even started the convention itself. Yeah, so getting a little bit more into the details of the environment at this event, outside the hotel where the convention was being held and all these Democratic politicians are gathered, there are hundreds of people protesting the Vietnam War, which had grown increasingly unpopular during Lyndon Johnson's presidency. Police and National Guard troops are everywhere. The first day of the convention ends with police not only attacking protesters, but also journalists, who with their bulky equipment and bright lights at the time could not have been mistaken in the crowd as being anyone other than a journalist. The next day, Dan Rather is attacked inside the convention hall. Later, some viewers wrote letters celebrating the attacks on journalists. We talked about earlier the mythology today that journalists back then were respected and beloved. So explain why there was this hostility to media then. Wow, it's tough. So just to even give more context about, you know, the numbers and people in the street, you had 10,000 protesters uh, in town. You had 12,000 police on duty, 5,000 National Guardsmen that Daly had called in before the convention even started. So usually you wait for the emergency to call the National Guards, but he he already had the National Guard there. And then there's a thousand Secret Service people and FBI agents. So uh, you've got about 18,000 security people versus 10,000. Uh, um, protesters. And then you've got the news people mixed in with all of that. And they're wearing credentials, you know, hanging around their, their necks. They have press passes. And obviously, if you're holding a giant camera and a lighting gig, a uh, rig, and maybe sound equipment, you're a journalist. You're not a protester who's coming to town. Um, and um, as you noted in your question, they were being targeted uh, by local police, Um, You would turn on your light to shoot some film and the police would immediately break the light. Um, So uh, the hostility was was really strong, was really real. And in certain ways, the police were just kind of acting on Mayor Daly's wishes. Now, there's no piece of paper in the Daly archive saying you should be you should beat up journalists while they're in town. It's more like it was understood that they were going to exert their authority and they were going to show that they had total control in Chicago. And of course, the opposite happened. But in a way, uh, you know, Daly is thinking as a Democrat, how can I fight the 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 supporters of Richard Nixon are the law. He's the supposed law and order candidate. So Daly's thinking, well, I can do law and order. I'm going to show that I can keep my town peaceful and under control. And he ends up, you know, keeping the peace in his mind by um, exerting total authority, which ends up being uh, quite violent. Things would get worse over the next few days. Let's talk about the Battle of Michigan Avenue on August 28th, 1968, and what was happening outside the convention hotel. Sure. So that's probably the most famous moment of the whole convention. And with my book, I try to add in some more kind of famous moments and get past the mythological moment of like, this is the key moment of the whole thing, the Battle of Michigan Avenue, which is a really important moment, but a lot of other important things happen that I'd love to to talk about. Um, On Michigan Avenue... Uh, the police beat protesters for, um, I can't remember if it was 17 or 18 minutes straight. Uh, They just started going at them in the street. And the cameras were there. It was one place where they had camera hookups outside the hotel and they recorded the whole thing. And protesters were chanting, 
famously, the whole world is watching. Um, now, a more accurate line would have been, uh, although less uh, elegant as a protest slogan, the whole world will be watching in three or four hours <laughs> because it was not a live broadcast, as I said before, because the electrical worker strikes. So they're beaten by police. There's footage of them being stuffed into paddy wagons. That footage is then uh, taken on motorcycle courier back to the amphitheater where the convention is, and it's edited, and they add some voiceovers to some of it, and they put it on the air hours later. Um, and it really distressed American viewers when they finally saw that footage very late at night. And in the days that followed, uh, it was recycled. It would, today we would say it went viral. You know, by the next few days, it was being shown um, across the country on local newscasts. It was there were photos of it in newspapers, and you know, people were just seeing all hell breaking loose in Chicago. And when we look back on it today, it seems like just straight up, oh, here's uh, evidence of police brutality. We have footage of police beating people who are not really fighting back. They're, the people are unarmed, and it seemed like evidence of police brutality. But at the time, a lot of people felt tremendous hostility. The so-called silent majority of you know conservative, middle-class white Americans felt a lot of hostility towards war protesters, towards hippies, as they called them. Um, and so a lot of people felt like the, the protesters got what they deserved and didn't understand it as damning evidence against police, but saw it as a sort of legitimate action against the protesters. You note that it took four years for American journalists to figure out their both sidism was boosting the voices of authoritarianism in the Trump administration. It took CBS News less than three days to reach a similar conclusion in Chicago in 1968. Talk about the decisions these broadcasters made on how to cover the protests and police violence happening. Well, it's a fascinating question. Um, the newsmen, CBS, NBC, ABC, they really held back on showing a lot of the street violence for days. And uh, in fact, the study afterwards that NBC did of its own footage found that 3% of their coverage had shown violence. Um, and they uh, estimated that about 5% of CBS coverage had shown violence. So why did they show so little? And a lot of that had to do with professional norms at the time, because a lot of the violence was against journalists and journalists did not want to be the story. They wanted to tell the story. Um, and, you know, they, they only started to tell the story when it became too big a story to ignore this constant uh, violence in the street. So another reason they held back is that they felt like, well, we want to be fair to the city of Chicago. It's hard, to, you know, there's, there's been a lot of, uh, of violence and chaos in cities all over America. All the cities have it tough. And we don't want Chicago to feel like we were unfair to them during their conventions. So we want to hold back and just show what's happening in the convention hall. And of course, they didn't really have the option of showing much in the streets because of the electrical worker strike. Um, so they thought that that seemed fair. After a few days, they realized it was too big a story to ignore, and they started to cover it. And then they got a tremendous number of phone calls and angry telegrams. Uh, kids today don't know what a telegram is. I tell them it's sort of like uh, an email with a piece of paper. Uh, people used to you know, send out uh, a note that they paid for, and someone would get it uh, very quickly. Um, and so the, the network's... Um, we're getting these telegrams all night. And, you know, uh, 
Walter Cronkite actually had an interview with Mayor Daley the day after the Battle of Michigan Avenue to try to be fair and show his side. Um, and it was a very bad interview and Daley uh, spread a lot of misinformation. It was a low point of, of Cronkite's professional career. And, it, you know, he made a mistake in that interview, but he had also started showing more footage of extreme violence and understood that at a certain point, you don't look for the other side's perspective. At a certain point, there was right and there was wrong, and they wanted to show what was going on that was wrong. And so they really kind of, um, even though I'm, I, as I've described it, there's some vacillating, they did ultimately sort of hit this tipping point where they were like, we're just going to show what's happening. We're not going to assume that we need to get the police point of view. Despite showing the truth of police violence, mass hostility toward the mainstream media and accusations of liberal media bias began to take off, something that Richard Nixon would further exploit in the years ahead. Letters to CBS ran 11 to 1 against the network's coverage of the convention protests. You talked about this a little bit already, but I was really interested that you asked this question in your book. What exactly made Chicago a tipping point moment for viewers crying bias when the networks had already shown protests and violence on television before? What did you conclude was the answer? Yeah, that's a tough one. There's a lot of different ways to answer that about what made this a tipping point moment. It was a kind of breaking point for a lot of people who already felt great concern and anxiety about what was happening in America. You already have people, uh, feeling negative, even though they're starting to turn against the war, they're also turning against war protesters. Um, and I think for some people, there is, uh, there's a lot of hostility against um, black protests in America. They have, you have white middle Americans very concerned about black protests in the streets. And to some extent, there's a sort of conflation of these mostly white protesters in Chicago, but with that that black movement um, and just sort of feeling like all the protesters could be conceptually lumped together. Um, that may sound far-fetched or a little strange, but the, the context for this is Mayor Daley, one reason he did so much security is because all of those uh street protests after the King assassination was just April, right? And this is August. And he thought this city might go up in flames, which it had done in April, but it would be even worse in August. So a lot of his um, high, uh, heavy-handed security is because he's afraid that Black people are going to be out in the streets protesting. And the reality is that the Black locals and activists from out of town who you know didn't come in, they saw this as a largely sort of uh, white event. And a lot of the black local uh, political players, you know, went into hiding or left town if they could, because they knew that Mayor Daley's police would literally round them up and put them in jail just for being in their homes if they were well-known political, you know, black activists. Um, so I think that for some home viewers, there was a sort of conflation of all of these different political forces in their minds that led to a negative interpretation of what they were seeing. The Another key issue is that Daley and President Nixon, as you pointed out, candidate Nixon and then President Nixon, went out of their way to say this was bias. You did not show how protesters provoked police. And people responded to this and bought the line that Daly and Nixon were promoting. And the idea is, um, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm a, a journalist, I'm holding up a camera, and I'm shooting uh, footage looking right at a crowd. 
and police are beating them. Basically, what the what Nixon and Daly and others are saying is, well, if you had just turned your camera left and right instead of just shooting in this one spot, you would have shown a better picture. You could have told the story better by showing more imagery of protesters, say, throwing things at police or cursing at police. And if you told a better story, we would have understood that this police violence was was valid was motivated. Um, and that's a very different attitude from today where people who say that news they don't like is fake, they don't say like, well, newscasters just should have told the story better. They say, oh, what they told was fake. That just never happened. No one no one said it in 1968, those images aren't real. It didn't happen. They just said you told the story wrong. Um, so that's just a small answer uh, to a really, really big, complicated issue about why this was a turning point, but I hope it gives you some idea. Yeah. So, despite these accusations of bias, uh, you write that a number of stories weren't covered during this convention due to concerns by the networks that they would be seen as doing advocacy reporting, not being objective. So, what wasn't covered? Well, a key aspect of what happened in the convention hall that was either not covered or was undercovered or selectively covered was issues of voting rights, voting rights and, and social justice for, for people of color. So the part of the story that was covered was uh, Julian Bond, who was a, a, a political player from Georgia, who was challenging the almost all white uh collection of delegates that Governor Lester Maddox, a very famous segregationist governor at the time, had assembled and brought to Georgia, uh, brought to the convention hall. And so you have Bond challenging those delegates and saying, you know, there was no fair selection of, of, of delegates in Georgia, and we challenged that. But you also have uh, Alabama making a challenge like that, Texas, North Carolina, many, many challenges by Black voters who have been disenfranchised and didn't have the option of being delegates in Chicago. And so the networks covered the Bond story in part because uh, Maddox was known, he was famous. It was a good story. And I mean that in journalistic terms, but just kind of in narrative terms, you had this kind of unattractive governor um, who was a real character, who was, a, you know, always had a good soundbite. And then you had this very attractive challenger who um, was very, very articulate, Julian Bond. And it was just a good story to tell. So they told it, but they ignored or very, very much underplayed these other stories. Um, that they, they should have covered. Uh, so uh, they definitely made some mis mistakes inside the convention hall. We've been talking about this highly publicized event, but before we wrap up, I really love a side story that you included in this book, an invisible story about how CBS helped relatives of Vietnam veterans. Few people know about this since CBS never talked about it, and it just really illustrates all that journalists do to help the public that so many people don't even know. Share that story. I'm so glad you asked about that because it's one of my favorite parts of the book and something that people don't ask me about so much. Um, and it's, it's quite beautiful. What I say in the book is I sort of frame it by thinking about what it means to trust media. And sometimes that can seem like a very policy mechanical kind of thing. You know, if you don't like the news, you won't watch it. The ratings will go down or you can have uh, things like the fairness doctrine in place to make sure everyone does a good job and they're trustworthy and so on. But there's this other level of trust I call affective trust and the feelings that people have for the journalists that they were watching on television. And, uh, you know, with 
Walter Cronkite in particular, people would send him at CBS photos of their babies watching him on TV. In fact, even watching the Democratic convention, photos of their cats watching him on television. (laughs) It's crazy. One woman, a young six-year-old, I believe she was, uh, named her kitten Cronkite and sent Cronkite a photo of Cronkite the kitten. And he wrote back to her. He was so flattered and honored. You know, he did write back to a lot of people. Um, But one of the most uh, poignant sets of letters that you find in the archive, and here I'm drawing on papers at the Briscoe Center for American History at UT Austin, which is a wonderful collection. They have Cronkite's papers and they have the CBS papers, uh, CBS newspapers. And uh, women, it's almost exclusively women, mothers would write to Cronkite and say, I saw my son on the news the other day. Um, you told a story of a battle. He died. And I saw his image. Or I, you read aloud dog tag numbers, and they were his dog tag numbers. Um, and this is the last image I have of my son. Could you send me that footage? Um, and Cronkite would generally answer personally, and he would forward the request to the basically the librarians uh, for CBS, the, uh, you know, they would find the, um, the, the footage. Uh, sometimes it was a lot of work because sometimes the, the woman uh, who had written in the mother had gotten the date wrong or a detail wrong. Occasionally it wasn't actually their son that they saw, you know, so they had to do some research, but most of the time they would find the footage and they would strike a, uh, an extra copy of that footage and put it in the mail, the 16 millimeter footage, right? This is long before video, you know, VHS tape or obviously, you know, digital imagery, right? So they would put the piece of film in the mail to people and they would watch it at home on their 16 millimeter um, home movie projectors. Um, And it was really quite beautiful. And CBS didn't uh, tell everyone that they did this. It was very organic. People just saw their kids on the news and wrote in and hoped that they would get help and they always got help. And to me, it's just one of the most beautiful stories about um, trust and sort of caring <laughs> in the world of news. And our final question of the show is, why does journalism history matter? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think there's a general way to answer that and then a more specific way. A general way is to say, well, Journalism history matters because history matters. In other words, journalism is just one aspect of, of history. And to understand our present, we have to you know, understand our past so that we, in theory, avoid making some of the same mistakes. And when we're looking for solutions, maybe we can learn and not sort of reinvent the wheel. We can learn from what worked in the past or what didn't work in the past. More specifically, journalism history is very important right now as we are in a moment of journalistic crisis. Um, that crisis is on so many fronts. Newspapers are just free falling uh, in, in, in decline. And it's, it's a real disaster, a very, very difficult situation for uh, legacy media like newspapers right now. Uh, with television, you've got cable news, which means a lot of left and right wing oriented news programming. And even I would go farther. I would say that a lot of the left programming is more sort of liberal and the right wing stuff is often extremist or authoritarian uh, and, and quite dangerous. And the point is, though, that both of these kinds of news have a strong point of view and they're often not really news, they're opinion. So if you if you have to be on the air 24 seven, 
you're not doing news 24-7 and you're not putting the resources into finding new things to report 24-7, a lot of that material is opinion. So people who get news that way are getting more opinion than news. And then if you get your news from, say, the traditional CBS, ABC, NBC, you're actually getting more news that really is news. So this is just like a little tiny snapshot of all of the crises that, that news is facing right now. Um, and I think it, it helps us a, l- a lot to look back and see what worked in the past, what didn't work, what the professional norms were, uh, and w- you know where they succeeded, where they failed, and to see what we can learn from that, see what we can use from that without slipping into nostalgia. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. <laughs>